having an organization that you can go to and have that support and get you back on your feet gives you the opportunity to, in the first instance, deal with the trauma. So we're a trauma-informed care kind of organization. And then they can really help themselves so much more once they're feeling more confident in themselves. So the first day or so, we might not even be doing anything with them just to give them a bed to sleep, some food, you know, hot soup or whatever it might be, just so they can actually breathe and then help them through the system. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today, we're talking with Rabbi Mendel Castell, who's the CEO of Jewish House that's located in Bondi. We're going to be talking about homelessness and crisis housing, as well as domestic violence in the eastern suburbs. We touch on affordable housing and what more the government can do in terms of preventative actions. Rabbi, let's start off. How did you end up in the eastern suburbs? Very good question. So I was born in Brooklyn, in New York, and I came out here as a student, so a bit of an exchange program, or I was sent out here to uh, work with the community as a student and eventually settled here, and I've been here now over 30 years. And so how long have you been at Jewish House for? So I've been about 11 years at Jewish House, and it's been a wonderful experience. Wonderful. Can you tell the audience a little bit about Jewish House, what you do? Sure. So Jewish House has been around for about 35 years. It was started by two brothers who bought a house in uh, Bondi. At that point, looking at um, issues of mostly drug and alcohol, cults, uh, mental health. Uh, When I joined about 11 years ago, I wanted to really focus and say, what does this organization do that might be different to others and can work with others? So if you can hone in on exactly where you fit in the broader landscape, you can work much better with everybody else rather than compete with everybody else. So we focused on the word crisis, which is, if you like, the pointy end of difficulty for people. And if you look in the health system, you've got an emergency room and a hospital. We sort of see ourselves a bit as the emergency room within the um, welfare system to be able to deal with the crisis, the pointy end, and then connect people into either back on their feet or into longer-term services. Okay. Just going back to something, did you just say cults? Yes. So it was a a big issue going back, you know, 35 years ago. I mean, it's still an issue today, but I don't think as much as it was then. I think that would surprise quite a few people in the eastern suburbs that there are cults around the east. Well, there are cults uh, all over the place, and there are people who try and take advantage of people and brainwash them into um, behaving in a particular way or spending their money in a particular way. So it is an issue, um, and there are you know, organizations and people that prey on, in many cases, people who are vulnerable. So most people listening to this would uh, think and say that the eastern suburbs is an affluent area um, and that there shouldn't really be a need for crisis housing in the east. What do you say about that and what are your thoughts about that? Well, we're a very busy organisation, so clearly there uh, there is a need and it's not just about money. Obviously, money is an issue. You know, we uh, joke about the gentleman who came to stay with us with his Ferrari. Um, But, you know, he was in a domestic situation and basically his uh, girlfriend, the partner, kicked him out on the street with nothing and he had nowhere to go to when he was able to get access to his accounts, etc., even though he didn't really have any money in there. Um, But for a few nights he was stuck Um, and even he, you know, needed help. In the case of uh, domestic violence, you know, in many cases a woman's walking out the door with, 
just the clothes on our back. And, you know, it makes it even more difficult in the East where they might be living in a $20 million mansion and they've got to basically walk through that door with nothing. And although down the track in the family court, they might get some more money, but that can take years sometimes. So there's plenty of um, cases where they don't have money. And even those who do have money, um, when there's issues of drug and alcohol, mental health, and other difficulty, um, sometimes they do need accommodation. So it's not just homelessness. Um, you know, we use our accommodation for respite and being able to settle situations and families as well. Just focusing on homelessness and crisis housing, you have been working in this area for a long time. What do you see as the major drivers of homelessness and the need for crisis housing in the eastern suburbs? So as I, as I said, you know, there's obviously issue affordability. Um, somebody loses their job, doesn't take very long till they run out of money, uh, particularly paying rents in the eastern suburbs. And it's not just the eastern suburbs. I mean, rents are unaffordable really across the state. So even if they say, okay, well, let's leave the eastern suburbs, let's find somewhere else to go, it's not that simple. So particularly on their, on a new start or a youth allowance um, where they can afford less than $200 a week, you just can't get anything for that. Um, domestic violence is obviously a driver. Um, family breakdown, people coming out of institutions. So if let's say somebody was hospitalized and they're coming out of hospital and they have nowhere to go. So there's lots of different um, reasons why people become homeless. And having that support, what actually happens is, you know, when you become homeless, it's a pretty big shock. So you almost freeze, you know, go into trauma. So having an organization that you can go to and have that support and get you back on your feet gives you the opportunity to, in the first instance, deal with the trauma. So we're a trauma-informed care kind of organization. And then they can really help themselves so much more once they're feeling more confident in themselves. So the first day or so, we might not even be doing anything with them just to give them a bed to sleep, some food, you know, hot soup or whatever it might be, just so they can actually breathe and then help them through the system. Yeah. Um, we'll just stay on domestic violence for a moment. Of the 56,000 women that are homeless each night, we know that 75% of them are there because they are trying to escape family violence. You've worked in this area for a really long time. From your experience, how do we tackle this? How do we stop this? So education is important. I think alcohol plays a huge um, role in domestic violence. You find that a very high percentage of people who are involved in domestic violence, alcohol is involved as well, in some cases other drugs. So these are some of the key aspects. Obviously to empower, in most cases it's women, to be able to understand the signs and be able to um, have the supports and a plan to be able to stay safe is very important. Um, and to be able to connect with people, with organizations. So there are organizations that they can reach out to before it becomes so bad that they need to leave the home. In some cases, there are programs that teach the husband how to, or partner, how to change. You know, there's change behavior um, therapies that are believed to, be, to work. So it's not if things are difficult, then you must leave the house but it must be addressed so it doesn't get worse. So I think that's some of the things to consider. Again, you've been working in this area for a while. You've seen different governments come and go, different approaches. Um, what do you think government can do more 
better so that they can help people put a roof over their head across that variety of reasons of why people are becoming homeless or need respite? So, you know, the first thing that everybody would say is create more homes. So that's the easy answer. Mm. Um, But there's a lot more that we can do before we get to that or as we get to that stage. And that is looking on how the services work. How do we connect people to services? So, for instance, if we look at the way it works in New South Wales, so if somebody's becoming homeless, they'll ring the homeless line, link to home. And in most cases, the first response will be a refuge, which is usually about a three-month turnaround. What we found with our temporary accommodation program that we were able to work with people for roughly around two weeks and hopefully get a longer-term outcome. And yes, some of those people go into refuges, but a lot of them don't. And what that says is that possibly the system is wrong and we're putting the wrong people into the wrong places. So if we actually have some sort of a triage system first and then get the refuges to specialize, so one for mental health, one for DV, one for drug and alcohol, so therefore, and sometimes they cross over, yes, but if there's specialty organizations that can actually help people with their specialty rather than mix everybody up because this one had a bed first, I think that's an important issue. So that's one thing. The other thing is to be able to get to people as quick as possible. So if you look at London, they've put in a policy called no second night. So if somebody ends up on the street, the government has a a mandate to get people off the street as quick as possible. New York has got uh, a program where they have paid people to walk around the streets and identify people, um, canvassers they're called, to identify when there's people that are homeless and and police do the same. So this way, the city can then respond and try and get people help as quick as possible and get them off the street. We at Jewish House have launched an app recently called Mend, where very easily you can walk down the street and if you see somebody that's homeless, in about 15 seconds you can make a report, which will then go to a service that can respond. So we're starting to push in that direction to be able to try and get people to connect with homelessness. So therefore, if you're walking down the street and you sort of don't know what to do, you want to look the other way, you can actually make a quick report on an app and feel that you've actually done something. I mean, down the track, we're looking to be able to work with corporates or even individuals. So if you've got a party and meet up with your friends, divide up the city and start at different points and uh, make reports and then come back together and talk about homelessness. So therefore, turn an event into something more positive. So there's new initiatives and ideas that are coming forward. The Premier has put in a priority to be able to have street homelessness across the state, which is ambitious um, if we don't have the whole of government approach and we don't have all the services involved and a real um, and money behind it and houses. So there, there really needs a much bigger approach than just a commitment, but hopefully the commitment's a good start, but now we've got to build on that. Um The going home, staying home policy has been quite controversial because you've also seen uh, very small not-for-profit specialised housing services now unable to compete. Do you have any thoughts about that policy or how policy like that could be tweaked or fixed? It's a hard one because um, Jewish House, who was operating in eastern suburbs for 35 years, missed out on the going home, staying home. Um, There was another service that is not really located in the east that's gotten um, that funding. But that's going back a number of years, so let's not cry over spilt milk. <laughs> but I do think there is, it's come time to 
relook at it and see what's working and what's not. And I think there's a lot of work that can be done, particularly if there's now focus on homelessness. Now's the time to tweak it and make it work better. Yeah, but the thing is that going home, staying home, what it really like, and you spoke about it, the need for specialized services. The reason why people become homeless is for a wide variety of reasons um, and the drivers of them are very different and need to be treated very differently. If you're homeless because of domestic violence, if you're homeless because of mental health or drug addiction, you can't be having these all these people together because they actually need, as you've identified, really different treatments. And what Going Home, Staying Home did is particularly a large number of female-specific shelters, um, which were just very small, niche, specialised, uh, missed out on that and then ended up shutting down. Um, so is there a need to go back and change the funding models so that it favours sort of, you know, those smaller niche specialised units? So I think most of those um, women's services that were being cut were jumping up and down quite loudly and the, that was reversed. <laughs> so they're actually back in business. But I think you do need to have specialised services. I think one of the other things, when you talk about going home, staying home, what that actually means is staying home is supposed to be about prevention. Mm. We actually don't do prevention in Australia because we actually don't know how to do it. Mm. Prevention is, the concept is that if you spend the money earlier and help these people, you'll prevent them becoming homeless, which means you're going to save money and you'll get a better outcome. But how do you differentiate between housing stress and homelessness risk? And if you can't differentiate between those two, then you're going to be throwing money at a problem that you don't that we don't know if we're really fixing. So if we put out a billboard tomorrow and we said, you know, if you're concerned about or if you're stressed about homelessness, ring this number, you'll be inundated. Everybody's got stress. Everybody's concerned about how they're going to pay their rent or their mortgage. So how do we differentiate? So New York has gone through an exercise with data from 250,000 families and be able and created a tool or questionnaire which then identifies the level of risk. And based on that level of risk is where you um, put your prevention services. And they're so confident with what they've done is they've actually run billboards. They give out flyers in poor areas. They really get out there and say, you know, if you're concerned that you're going to become homeless, ring us. And they've set up a program called Homebase with offices that people can actually go into to be able to get the help. And those offices are run by independent organizations rather than housing slash government, where if a person walks in there, they're not feeling like, oh, I need to put pressure on the government or housing because they have the houses. And it's in some ways not even fair for the frontline workers because they're under this huge stress. On one hand, they want to be able to be nice and help the person that's coming in. On the other hand, they need to say, listen, we have no houses and you can scream and jump up and down. We can't really help you. And then the person says, well, but you're housing, you have to help me. You're the one who actually has the housing. So it creates a conflict, which in some cases re-traumatizes people. So for instance, one of the things that we're looking at is to try and put an office in Central Station. So Central Station is probably one of the key areas where people be start their homelessness journey. You know, they might come in from the, from the country, from the bush, and just arrive at the station and don't know where they're going and they'll just sleep at the station and then eventually, you know, sleep on the train or wherever it might be. So if we actually had an office at Central Station where the guards in the evening can say, tomorrow morning there's an office with people that can help you, I think is an important move. But again, should be an independent organization so that people 
they can put their arm around them and say, we'll do everything we can. We'll advocate for you. We'll be with you. And the person doesn't feel, well, you're housing. You really have a house, but you don't want to give it to me. So I think those are important issues. But the prevention one is an interesting one um, because we've looked at that tool and we're now in the process of trying to adjust it for Australia. So working with UTS, we've sort of adjusted it and now we're trying to go with the government to actually see that they agree with our assumptions. And then once that happens, then we try and see how do we actually bring that into whether it's the going home, staying home, which technically is funded for prevention, but not able to do it properly, um, or how the systems might change. So there's a number of things afoot, and that's one of them. Yeah. Um, And prevention, I think we really need to be focusing more on prevention because the current waiting list for social housing is now 10 years, um, and we're not really building stock at the rate that we need to be, even if we want to be just managing the problem. One of the things that's happening around the eastern suburbs uh, because of the exorbitant property prices that continue to increase is we're seeing the sale of social housing um, and then that social housing being rebuilt out uh, in the western suburbs and in parts of Sydney that are cheaper. Do you have any thoughts about this and what you think about the fact that we're not rebuilding stock around where existing communities are? So I think it's very important to have stock in local areas. Um, People have family there. People have professional support in that area. Um, Some have work in that area. So it's important to be able to keep social housing in all areas so therefore people are not isolated and removed. Um, We also need to be realistic around dollars. I think there's probably a step in between as well where not everybody who's on the waiting list for social housing, the idea is, you know, you get into social housing, you're there for the rest of your life kind of concept. So how do we create affordable housing for people who might need it for a year or two or three years? Um, And I think that's, that's an area to look at. And one of the areas is possibly to leverage some government land um, so if they don't want to put in dollars, so maybe use land. Um, and we're looking at a number of concepts in that sort of space of how do we leverage government land to be able to provide more affordable housing. But affordable is a big word. So traditionally affordable mean is mostly for key workers, which is probably about 20% cheaper than um, market rent, which most people can't afford either, particularly in the East. Um, but to give you an idea, a person on New Start probably is pushing paying $200 a week. Um, And on that, you can, most cases, not even get a room. And in some cases, you might be able to get one of two or three, four beds in one room to be able to um, afford that kind of thing. And while you might say, well, it's transitional, do it for a few weeks. But for some of these people, it's it's not a few weeks, it's a few years. Um, Yes, there are some programs for women escaping DV, Um, But there clearly needs to be for people who've lost their job or so many other areas of people who can't afford it and just give them a leg up so that therefore they can get back on their feet. They might not need social housing. They might just need it for a few years, a transitional kind of concept. I just want to stay on affordable housing for a moment because there is this explosion of what they're calling new age boarding houses popping up sort of, and we're seeing them all over the eastern suburbs. There's a really good example of uh, the new age boarding house on the corner of Clovelly Road and Arden Street. And a single studio is being rented for $585 a week. Um, Now, 
for if you're thinking about like your rent taking up 30% of what your salary is, that it would assume that your salary is about 100K a year. You know, we're building this supposed boarding houses as affordable housing, but it seems to not really be doing, from, from my perspective, what it's actually there to do. Uh, do you have thoughts on sort of these new age boarding houses and how they're popping up and who they're marketed to? And So again, it comes down to this concept of affordable housing mm-hmm. and that might suggesting that that might be in a more affordable kind of way. You know, even if you go at 50% of their um, earnings to be able to pay for rent, it's still um, significant. I think their market is mainly, you know, nurses, police officers, um, people like that who want to be closer to work will go into these rooms. But the real people who need affordable, it's, it's not affordable for them. Yeah. Thank you, Rabbi. We're just going to, I've got a couple of little wrap up questions that I'm going to ask you. So three final questions. What is your favorite place to eat in the Eastern Suburbs? Do you have a favorite place to get coffee? And if you go to the beach, where's your favorite beach? <laughs> so with regards to favorite place to go for a meal so i'm relatively limited <laughs> being kosher so there's only a few places so there's um jesse's bakery there is uh, glicks there is um Katzi's food factory and uh savion and peter mix and uh you know another one or two mendy's pizza and a couple of others so not much of a choice there so <laughs> um with regards to coffee i actually don't drink coffee so that's out um, After 30 years of living in the eastern suburbs, you haven't got. <laughs> so I don't drink coffee. I'll go for uh, for a drink somewhere, but not uh, coffee. Um, and obviously, Bondi has got to be the best beach in the world. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Rabbi. It's and a I'm sure that the audience is really enthusiastic and happy to hear all about what's happening with Jewish House. Last thing, Rabbi, before I let you go, you've got a dinner coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about that and tell the audience if they would like to be able to help and support Jewish House? Sure. We're very excited about the dinner on the 13th of November at the Convention Centre in Darling Harbour. We've got uh, Ian Thorpe as our guest speaker. Um, We hope to have about a 1,000 people there, and it's a really fantastic night with wonderful food and the traditional live auction, silent auction, raffles, and all the all the bits and pieces and entertainment that come with the dinner. So it'll be a great night. So if you do want to join us, please give us a call at Jewish House at 93860770. Um, the other thing I'd like to mention is the app, which is called Mend, M-E-N-D, which is available in the App Store, both in Google and Apple. Um, download it and get out there and make those reports so we can actually get services so it's not us doing it, but there's many services out there who joined with the app, including um, Mission Beat and Nimai and others, um, who will get those reports and then follow them up. So let's help those people. Let's get them off the street. Let's really get homelessness off the radar or off the um, issues list in Australia. We, it's a wealthy country. We really shouldn't have homelessness the way we do. So thank you very much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, and whoever would like to support Jewish House, feel free to give us a call. Whether you want to donate money or whether you'd like to uh, volunteer time, give us a call at the office on 93860770 or jewishhouse.org.au on the net. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi, and we'll include that information in the bio as well. Thank you. Before we leave, I'd like to pay my respects to Dan Hutton and the Hutton family. Dan had had a long fight with cancer. And he's been a central part of our local community and co-author of the much-loved Beast magazine. 
He's father of two kids and he'll be greatly missed. Rest in peace, Dan. And lastly, a reminder of some upcoming events. On Saturday the 9th of November at 21's Cafe, Clovelly Road, 211 Clovelly Road, come down and join us for a coffee and share with me any issues you might be having in our wonderful electorate. That's it for this episode of Could You Voice. See you next time. Thank you.